Well, good morning, Redeemer Bible Church. It is a pleasure to be here with you this morning. Uh, I have heard that the middle service here is the best group of people. So congratulations, you made it into the best group of people. Yeah, that's right. Give yourselves a round of applause. Uh, you know, you, you, you sleep in just enough to serve the morning service so they can have all the best seats. But you come a little bit early for those, you know, people who are going to come in the 11. We'll, we'll deal with the 11 o'clock service when they get here. But no, it's, it's lovely to be here with you. Um, I, was, uh, I was very honored when Pastor Dale called me and asked if I would come and, and fill the pulpit in July. And uh, I was... Um, uh, I was happy to do so, and I was, uh, I was misunderstanding what he meant by fill the pulpit. This pulpit is a little taller than I was expecting. John is a lot taller than me. He's a much godlier man than me because he's a foot taller. Um, but <laughs> all that to say, it's, it's great to know that the vessel doesn't matter, that the Lord can use any person that he chooses to give you his word, and that's what we're going to do this morning. So I bring you greetings from Louisville. Uh, from Anchor Bible Church. That's a church that you would find great fellowship with, very like-minded. They'll be studying today through Genesis. Pray for them. Pray for our pastor, Jack Hughes, uh, who very much like uh, Pastor John goes verse by verse through the text. So it's a joy for me to be here with you this morning. I have long been a fan of Pastor John and have been watching what he has been doing here at Redeemer, and I am thrilled to be here with you. Pastor John and I met about 15, 16 years ago or so at Grace Community Church when we were scrubbing toilets and setting up Awana and doing, you know, brass baseboards and all kinds of fun stuff, stories that he can tell you. But over the years, we've just developed a really close friendship, and uh, I have been uh, impressed with him as a brother in Christ, his love for Jesus, and his ability to expound the word. So uh, I know you know this, but, but what Pastor John has given you here is, is rare and precious in the, expo- uh, the exposition of God's word, a church that does not follow gimmicks or strategies or formulas, but instead just pursues Christ together. So be glad of that. Honor your pastor in that. And for me, that's exactly what I want to accomplish here this morning. A message that is for you, that is meant to encourage you, and that is meant to elevate Christ so that we can worship Christ better together as we leave here today. And with that in mind, I would invite you to turn to John chapter 18. That's the Gospel of John chapter 18. Uh, If you picked up one of those blue Bibles, it's going to be on page 1001. And as we turn there, I want to set the stage for why we're looking at this text. Why is it important that we know this text, and how can this text help us meditate on Christ this morning? You see, as as Pastor John often says, Jesus Christ is the senior pastor of Redeemer Bible Church. And if we're going to submit to Jesus as shepherd and as Lord and as our pastor, we better know who he is, and we better accurately know who he is. And we we want to look at texts like this so that we can understand why he and why he alone is worthy of our worship. Redeemer exists here in this part of uh, Arizona and the country in one of the most saturated areas of Mormonism and Mormon worship. And Mormons claim to worship the same Jesus we do. Why can't we go to church with them? Why do we not fellowship with them? What is different about our worship? Uh, Just in the same way, uh, the, uh, just as there are a plurality of Mormons here, a basic Christian American heritage exists all over the country, but here as well, where people would just claim, yeah, I, I go to church, I worship Jesus. 
And how do you know? How do you know whether you are on the same page with them, whether or not they are like-minded with you? Uh, These expressions of Jesus and of worshiping Jesus, often we hear our neighbors say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, I worship Jesus. And you're like, oh great. How do we know those expressions are true? How do we know that they're biblical? How do we know if they're connected in reality to the reality of the person and work of Jesus? This can be confusing, and we want to clarify some of that confusion. So some of the questions we'll be addressing today, which Jesus is it that's worth worshiping? And why can we not worship Jesus ecumenically with the world, with anyone who claims that name? How, as members of Redeemer Bible Church and as believers in Jesus, can you identify the true followers of Jesus and fellowship with them? How can you know if your neighbor and you are worshiping the same Jesus? And lastly, for this morning, uh, what makes Jesus and exclusively the Jesus as stated and, and as known, made known to us in the Bible, what makes this Jesus worth worshiping? Why is he worthy of your adoration? Why is he worthy of your praise? Why is he worthy of your time, your efforts, your energy, your money, your fealty? Well, God is good. And providentially for us this morning, this answer is going to be found in a character study of Jesus in this passage in John 18. There's more that can be said. We could spend 10 years talking. We could spend 1,000 years talking about Jesus from the text. But right now, we're going to look at this passage. And the answer to all of these questions is always found in asking the following question. What does the Bible, the inerrant, sufficient, divinely spoken word of God, have to say about Jesus? End of discussion. Anyone else's view is wrong. The second part of that question, now that I know this, how can I conform to what the word has called me to be in Christ Jesus? And we can rest assured that all counterfeit views will be pushed to the side in the glory of the Jesus that we will see in this passage. So our goal this morning is simple. Redeemer is a church that, is, that exists to worship and glorify Jesus. So let's just take some time this morning to survey a text that allows us to do that together, to worship Jesus. The simple goal, let's just be blown away by Jesus. Let's look at this passage and just be blown away and drawn to worship him in the way that he deserves. And this text that we'll look at this morning will not fail us in that goal. So let me read the text for us. It's going to be John 18, 1 to 11. I will pray for us, and then we're going to dive right in. There's a lot to survey, and I want to share this with you. So John chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he, and Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore, he again asked them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus, the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way. And this was to fulfill a word which he had spoken of those whom you have given me. I lost none. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. 
So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Pray with me. Father, as we open your word, we seek Jesus. We seek the person to whom you have called us to repent and believe. We ask, Lord, for the eyes of illumination, the empowering of the Holy Spirit to see Christ for who he is so that we can worship him in the manner that he is worthy and that we can take him to the world around us. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. So there's a lot to see here, and we're going to get through it quickly. Just bear with me, but this text is, is great. It does, it's pretty straightforward. It doesn't present a whole lot of linguistic or, or interpretive challenges, but what we're going to see here, if you're taking notes and you're making an outline, what I want to give to you are eight characteristics of Jesus that will confirm his exclusive worthiness of our worship. That's a long sentence. Eight characteristics of Jesus that will confirm his exclusive worthiness of our worship. Okay, and on the flip side of that, what we're also going to see is why any other form, version, or expression of Jesus must be rejected as unworthy, unworthy of your worship. So we're just going to dive right in, and in verse 1, we're going to first see that Jesus is a shepherd. Okay, Jesus is a shepherd. What has he been doing his entire ministry but shepherding people? but growing a flock, but making disciples and carrying them along with him, giving them the information they need, giving them the, the, the knowledge that they need to trust him and follow him. Jesus has been shepherding his disciples. He's been instructing them, leading them, preparing them, and then giving them a preview of this very moment, his death and his resurrection. And this is important because later on in this passage, we'll learn of the characteristics of Jesus, that he knows everything. He has divine knowledge. And as we already read, this is the account of Jesus' arrest and betrayal. And yet, verse 1 tells us what? Jesus had spoken these words in the upper room. He went forth with his disciples. He took his disciples. He ushered and shepherded his disciples to the, the very garden where he would be betrayed. And this is our first picture in the text of, of the true heart and character of Jesus. Jesus had determination and obedience and boldness in the face of extreme trial and a heart that sought to, to shepherd his disciples through what he knew would be the valley of deepest darkness for them. You remember multiple times that Jesus had already told his disciples that he was going to go up to Jerusalem to be killed, to be offered up as a sacrifice and poured out as a drink offering. And yet, instead of just leaving them and kind of sneaking away like we might be inclined to do, he shepherds them to the very garden where he would demonstrate to them, as we'll see, that he was going as a willing sacrifice in the full power of the Holy Spirit and not as a failure captured against his will. The disciples needed the, the strength of their shepherd one last time to endure what they were going to go through the next four days. They needed to see a demonstration of Jesus' glory and his power one more time to help them through his arrest, his torture, his crucifixion, his trial, his death, and to carry them through until they saw him again in his resurrection glory. So Jesus is a shepherd of his people. Remember, he claimed in John 10, I am the good shepherd, and the shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. It's as if Jesus were saying, hey, hey, disciples, do you remember 
when I said multiple times before that I would lay down my life for you, come with me and watch as I lay it down. No one takes it from me. And I need to be your shepherd here. I need to, I know this is scary and hard. I'm going to walk you through this. So Jesus is a gentle and caring and loving shepherd of his people. That began with the disciples, but it it continues with us. The disciples were Jesus' first people, but we are his people. When Jesus went to the cross resolute to die for his people, he had your faces in mind if you are in Christ. And his people, as his people, we do not serve a passive, ignorant Jesus. We do not serve a shallow, vindictive, spiteful Jesus. We do not serve a distant or aloof Jesus. We serve a a gentle shepherd who loves and cares deeply for his people. He cares deeply enough that he endured the full wrath of God's eternal judgment on mankind in three hours on the cross. We can't imagine that. And that shepherding and that care makes Jesus worthy of our worship. As we, as we come along in this passage, when we see Jesus as a shepherd, another reason that we're going to see in verses 2 to 4 is that Jesus is all-knowing. Okay, Jesus is all-knowing. In verses 2 to 3 in this passage are what we would call a parenthetical anecdote. This is as if John is kind of unfolding for you the drama on the stage here, and it's like the spotlight goes dim, and he puts a light on over here and says, now, as a side note, you remember what Judas was doing. Judas was over here doing his work. And we remember back in John 13 that Judas had left the upper room with permission of Jesus to go accomplish his work. This is the very work that he was going to accomplish, an evil work of going and gathering a crowd to come after Jesus. So Jesus shepherds his people out of the upper room over to the garden. And we remember from Luke 9, 51, when Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he set his gaze on Jerusalem, unflinching and unwavering to accomplish the goal of redemption, of giving up his life as a ransom for many. And Jesus' unflinching purpose is unchanged here. He was going into the garden to die. And he was shepherding his people to do so, knowing full well what would happen. So Jesus shepherds his disciples across the valley into the garden in order to wait for Judas, who he knew was coming, who the text also tells us knew this place, had been there often, and what did he do? He procured a band of soldiers with pitchforks and torches and weapons. What does this sound like to you? This sounds to me like a lynch mob. This is a lynch mob coming against the Son of God. This is an ambush. And if Judas were smart on any level, he would have chosen a different person to do this to. Any other person in the history of mankind... This would have been a desperately bad situation. But Jesus, being the all-knowing shepherd, knew exactly what was coming. And this was the perfect stage on which to accomplish his theater of redemption. To showcase his determination to obey the Father. To showcase his willing sacrifice to his people and for his people. And as we'll see in a minute, to demonstrate his power so poignantly that no one, not anyone, could have possibly doubted that he was in complete control over his life and his death. And that brings us right into the third characteristic here, that Jesus was in complete control. Jesus here is in complete control. Look at verse 4. Jesus asks as as this mob approaches him, whom do you seek? And that is an audacious thing, if you think about it. Any one of us, if a mob of angry people with weapons is coming up after us, we're going to panic. 
And that mob is pretty much going to control the narrative from here on out. Lynch mobs don't normally take direction from the people they're coming to murder or to arrest. And in this case, Jesus, the very man sought out for that arrest, sets the tone. This gentle, all-knowing shepherd who is in complete control at the point of his arrest is in control. And verse 5, the, the, the mob doesn't disagree with him. They, they actually answer him. They say, uh, Jesus of Nazareth. What? They answer him. This is, this is crazy. They, they were coming after him, though. We have to understand what's, what's happened for the last week. For the last week... Jesus has been doing miracles. He's been healing people. He's been raising people. He raised Lazarus from the dead a few days before in Bethany outside the city. And this tidal wave of excitement ran over the whole city, this reverence, this fear. The Son of God is here. The Messiah is here. They usher him in in the triumphal entry. The people declared him Messiah. And this mob knew that. Jesus was in complete control. They feared him. They revered him. Jesus was in total control over this betrayal and arrest. Remember that. And I'm not sure about you, but when it comes to me and relinquishing control of my eternal destiny to anyone, I want that person to be in complete control. Not only to know exactly what they're going to do with me, but to be a good, all-knowing, gentle shepherd in the process. That makes Jesus worthy to be worshiped. Now, is that the world's view of Jesus? Is that the same Jesus that the Mormons worship or the same Jesus that the world claims? Do they want a Jesus who is in more control or a Jesus who is in less control? Less control, thank you. Less control. Less control. Only God's people are willing to submit to God's authority. And when you have a Jesus whom you can control and whom you can even use for your own gain, that is an idol. That is a false Jesus. That is not our Jesus. Our Jesus is in complete control. And next, the next characteristic we're going to see, number four, is that Jesus is the divine, all-powerful one. And that flows right out of this. If Jesus is in complete control, I hope he is divine and all-powerful. And this part of the narrative is amazing. It's one of those, those understated but incredible things that you'll read. And it may be very well one of the most incredible. And when I get to heaven, this is one of those moments that I want, I want to ask God to play back for me. I want to see this. If we follow along verse 5 and 6, this is what it says here. Uh, they answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas, who was also with them, betraying them, was standing over with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Uh, does that sound exciting? Does that sound a little understated? What if I said Jesus blew them backwards and they fell on their backs in supplication? They had no control over this. The very declaration of who Jesus was blew these people onto their backs. This is amazing. This, this reminds me of, are there any Lord of the Rings fans in the room? Big time. Um, so the beginning of the, f the first movie, and in, in, in we get a good visual from it, where the, the king cuts off the ring from the bad guy's finger. And he just blows up, and you see this tidal wave of shockwave go out, and hundreds of thousands of soldiers are just blown backwards and fall on their backs. And that's a cool effect. We look at a movie and it's like, that's cool. That's a good visual. This actually happened when Jesus spoke to this mob. They were blown backwards with no control over what was happening. Jesus was in complete control. He was divine, all-powerful, and he was expressing that to them. This is amazing. This is amazing. And this is why the, that Jesus is worth worshiping. And it's, it's good to note here because we, we must understand that only the God of the Bible is worth worshiping. 
And right here, when this mob was flattened before Jesus' pronunciation, Jesus makes a statement that would have and could have only been understood as the divine expression of Godhood. The text says, I am he, as we read it in the English, but the translators provide he. In the Greek, the he is not there. So what Jesus says is literally, I am. And if you're a believer and you've read your Bible, that should sound familiar and that should ring some bells. So when we look back in the Bible, where do we find that? If we go to Exodus, we, when Moses says to God, when, you know, who, who he should tell the Hebrews, who, who do I tell sent me? He says, tell them, I am has sent you. I am, or the ever-existing one, the one who has always been. Jesus here is claiming that very title. And he's also claiming the power to annihilate anyone who would stand in his way. Not only that, but we remember earlier in the, the, the mob that was questioning Jesus back in John eight fifty eight. he declared, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And that mob immediately tried to kill him for blasphemy. But his time had not yet come, so he escaped. He was able to slip away and just casually escape because Jesus was in complete control. But what happens next is, is yet another reason for unfold, this unfolding picture of who Jesus is and why he is exclusively worthy of our worship. Not only is Jesus a gentle shepherd, an all-knowing being who is in complete control, and oh, by the way, he has just declared to himself to be the pre-existent God of Israel who is all-powerful. But here, John tells us, characteristic number five, that Jesus is humble in submission to the Father. Because we see that in what happens next. The text says here in verse seven and eight that Jesus, after literally blowing this mob to the ground, allows them to get up, dust themselves off, gather their wits, figure out what in the world just happened, and then again, approach him. And this is, this is just so funny. This is another scene that I want to see. Jesus is still in complete control. He asks again, whom do you seek? And I, I just want to see the looks on their faces. I, who's going to answer? Are we going to answer him again? I mean, this is, this is crazy. They're, they're kind of, you know, just very timidly now, probably at this point. Uh, Jesus? Nazareth? And Jesus doesn't respond in the same manner. Jesus could have just vaporized them and, and just have been over with. But we've already discussed that this Jesus' purpose in going to Jerusalem is to die. He knows what he's doing. So he doesn't exercise divine power here, but divine humility. He doesn't destroy his enemies. He quietly submits to the will of his father. He doesn't fight back here. One expression of his divine power was enough for his disciples to see that he was going willingly and for the captors to see that he was in complete control over this situation. We, we know Jesus earlier had prayed in this very garden with sweat uh, like drops of blood coming down. Lord, take this cup from me. Let this cup pass. But then he says, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. He said he would willingly drink it if the father willed. He would willingly lay down his life for his sheep. And that submission is what we see unfolding here in front of us. Jesus is humble in his submission to the Father. Well, moving right along, number six here, Jesus is the protector of his people. Jesus is the protector of his people. The narrative continues here, verses eight to nine, where Jesus states when they, they say, Jesus of Nazareth again, and they ask, and they're bracing for the, the shock wave. And instead he says, I told you that I am. And now they know what I am means. 
but they see his restraint. And he says, so if you seek me, let these men go. And again, John is sort of the parenthetical side note narrator shows us that this was done to fulfill the words that Jesus had spoken earlier in his ministry. John 17, 12, where he stated during his high priestly prayer that the physical well-being of his disciples would be protected and that he would lose none that the Father had given to him. That's so comforting. He would lose none. Now, Judas went out from him because he was not of him. We know that to be true. Judas was not given by the Father. He was not elect. And Jesus predicted this from Psalm 41.9, where that psalm says that his own friend in whom he placed trust, with whom he broke bread, would betray him. And in John 17, Jesus confirms this is Judas fulfilling this. But of his own people, of his disciples, he would lose none. He would protect them. And this was meant to fulfill his directing of their future earthly ministry. They would eventually all die, but in Jesus' divinely inspired purpose for them, they would be preserved through these next days, weeks, and months in order to witness Jesus' willing sacrifice, his miraculous and divine resurrection, his calling of them into ministry, his charge of them in the Great Commission at his ascension, and their establishing of the church and writing of the New Testament, as well as their eventual martyrdom in Christ. Jesus protected his people here for the purpose of glorifying himself and glorifying the Father to the world. Jesus used them to do so, and that tradition continues in his people today. We are vessels, we are ambassadors of Christ for the gospel to the world. We are his witnesses. We must expound the name of Christ to the world, but that name must be an accurate name. We must preach the right Jesus. We must give the world a Jesus worth worshiping and a Jesus accurately portrayed. And that leads us to characteristic number seven of Jesus here that confirms his exclusive worthiness of our worship, and that is this. Jesus is merciful toward his enemies. Ellipsis for now. Jesus is merciful towards his enemies for now. Okay, we read this in verse 10. Jesus just gives us a quick picture of mercy here. In verse 10, it says, Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest slave and cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. Now, John doesn't include the detail that Luke gives us, that Jesus picked up that ear, dusted it off, and put it back on his head and healed him fully. Now, as a member of the mob, Jesus, if he wasn't the character that he was or if he wasn't divine, could have easily just said, well... You come after me, and that's what you get. My people are going to protect me. But he doesn't do that. He shows mercy. He shows grace to an undeserving sinner. And this is not a saving grace. This is just an example of God's common goodness to all men. Jesus' mercy and grace is evident in the world around us. We see that. We see the wicked prospering. We see the enemies of God enjoying freedom, enjoying ease and comfort, and some even thriving in their wickedness, but that will not last. And we hear nothing more of Malchus in church history or in the word of God. We don't know if he repented or believed. That's in the hands of God the Father to draw those to himself. But the point here is that the grace and mercy that Malchus received from Jesus was real and palpable, but it was temporary And if he remained an enemy of Jesus until death, then that mercy ended. And Redeemer, today, 
we see unbelievers unwittingly relishing in the grace and mercy of God, unaware that that mercy and grace will end one day when their life is forfeit them and they stand before the judgment seat of God. Jesus extends grace and he calls us to do so as well. And the way that we do that is through the preaching of his word and the evangelizing of the lost. Jesus is worth worshiping because he calls all men everywhere to repent, to believe in the gospel, and to be saved. And that mercy is extended to sinners in their rebellion. And God has said, until the fullness of Gentiles has come in, his wrath is stayed. So let us take advantage of that time and minister to the lost. Find those people of God. Well, I hope you're seeing now that this passage has has just been a joy for me to study for the last several weeks and, and that you're seeing this picture of Christ unfold with me. It's exciting to see these characteristics that drive our worship. And there's one last characteristic here that I'll leave you with. And that is number eight here, that Jesus is absolutely determined to save his people. Jesus is determined to save his people. And we see that in verse 11. Jesus is determined to save his people. Verse 11 says this, so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. The cup which the father has given me, shall shall I not drink it? Shall I not drink it? Jesus makes the point here that Peter, this defense of Jesus by Peter is unnecessary. And in fact, it's actually hindering his progress towards the cross. He tells Peter, put away your sword. And then Jesus here asks Peter the most important and pressing rhetorical question that was ever asked of any man in the history of the world. Challenge me on that. What is a more pressing rhetorical question than this? Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given to me? In other words, this, hey, Peter, shall I not die for you? Hey, Peter, should I disobey my father in heaven? Hey, Peter, do you want to pay for your own sin? Jesus asks Peter here, should I reject and lay aside the very reason that I came to live when I'm so close to the finish line? As the hymn says to us, who lived to die and died to rise, the all-sufficient sacrifice. The all-knowing divine shepherd here knew exactly what he was doing and why he was doing it, and he kept that goal in mind. Jesus is determined to obey the Father and to willingly go to the cross. Why? So that all men that the Father has given to him will be saved and he will lose none. He will save them all. But that begs the question to me, why? Why would he do this? Why is it worth it to him to save a group of rebellious haters who are worthless? Paul calls us the base things of the world. Why are we, what what is worth it to Jesus to do this? Well, we're going to finish up in in another passage here to, to wrap up kind of the reason for that. So turn with me to Hebrews 12. That's going to be page 1111 on those blue Bibles if you're in one of those with us. And what we're going to see here in Hebrews 12 is an incredible picture that I was actually tempted to preach to you, uh, this passage, but uh, came down to John and this one, so I'm just using this one to give us some encouragement today. 
But I want to know that question. What's Jesus' motivation? Why does he want to save us? And how does that help us in our weakness in our daily battle against sin? What difference does it make if the Jesus of the Bible saved us or if Jesus of somebody else's interpretation saved us? The author of Hebrews gives us more clarity kind of on John's point here uh, in that Jesus is determined to save us. As well, he gives us all, as believers, the necessary means by which to find victory in Jesus. So we're going to look at Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 3, and read that along with me. It says this, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And this is so, so, so beautiful. We see incredible things here. And, and take out a new sheet of paper because I'm going to preach a whole other sermon. This is so good. There's, there, we could just dig here for weeks. But Jesus, it, it shows here that this Jesus is determined to save us and gives us his motivation. The means by which we can find victory over sin and ways we can worship him better. How do we find victory? The text tells us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Run the race fixing your eyes on Jesus. When you find yourself distracted by life, by the daily routine, by the sins that so easily entangle you, the enticements of the world, the details, when you're lost in the details, fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix them on Jesus. They say that Running a marathon is really hard, and, and if some of you in here have done it, you know. I've never done it, and I never probably will, but they say that a runner, when they get close to the finish line, if they can finally see the goal, even if they're just exhausted, can, can muster that energy to, to cross the finish line because they see the goal in front of them. And in the same way, it's, it's so discouraging to be overwhelmed by life and say, when is this going to end? When am I ever going to find victory? When is the Lord going to take this, this uh, trial out of my life? But when your eyes are fixed on Jesus with the same resolve that Jesus had in fixing his eyes on Jerusalem, going willingly to the cross for you, then you can maintain perspective. You can maintain the object of your worship right here. And I hesitate to use this example, but it's like a a carrot hung in front of a donkey. And yeah, we're the donkey. We're the ones who need a carrot dangled in front of us to remind us what we're walking for, what we're walking towards. And as we do that, you'll see the world fade away. The, it, it just dims out, and the temptations and the sins that so easily entangle you fade away in the glory and the radiance of Christ as you look to him for your victory. You can use his strength to endure. His strength is perfected in your weakness, not the other way around. And you can shed all love for this world by fixating on Christ. And the author of Hebrews, lastly here, also gives us the reason that Jesus has saved us. What's Jesus' motivation? What does he get out of all this? And it says in verse 2 here, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. For the joy. It's Jesus' joy to save you, to, to redeem you, to adopt you, to sanctify you, to elevate you, to glorify you, and to reign with you in his kingdom forever. And it's his joy to do this. He, he wants to. He loves to. 
Jesus is worth worshiping because it is his joy to transform you from being dead in your sins to alive in Christ and to give you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Church, does that sound like a Jesus that we can worship, that is worthy of your worship? That sounds like a Jesus that's worthy of my worship. And I want to covenant together that we leave here today with this picture in mind, aiming to worship Jesus more than we did when we came in the room. And I want to covenant together that we reject all other forms of Jesus, all other expressions of Jesus as false. Not only that, direct others who are following those versions to the one true God of the Bible. Call them to repentance and faith. And we see signs when you walk out the door here, you'll see signs as you go to the parking lot that say, you are now entering your mission field. I've never seen that at another church. And that is a beautiful thing. It's a great reminder. So take this, take this picture. And when you have a neighbor who says, oh, I believe in Jesus. Is it the same Jesus I worship? The all-knowing, all-powerful, loving, comforting, protecting shepherd who is God? No, let me tell you about him. Don't assume. And if you're here and you don't know the gospel today, if you do not know Jesus, or if you think you know Jesus and you've been worshiping a different version, repent of your sins. This Jesus stands ready to forgive you, to transform you into a new creature, and to adopt you into his family, and to eventually glorify you and reign with you forever. If you have questions on that, the pastors will be down here. You'll find us around. Come talk to us. We would love to pray with you and lead you to Christ this morning. Today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow's the devil's day. Don't wait. Tomorrow's never promised. Give your heart to Christ today. Now let us pray together to the Lord to accomplish all these things in our hearts.